not sure uh, what TV shows or series you watch in your house. Maybe you've watched The Game of Thrones, uh, and maybe you fall in love with that show, but we want you to fall in love with The Claim of Thrones. You notice the little name play there. Um, but uh, we kind of played around with that idea so as when we were looking at the sermon series. But, you know, as far as in our house, there's really only three or four shows that we watch, three or four series that we watch to play regularly. Uh, just so you know, there is a Hallmark series on this weekend, Winterfest. It's been on our house almost all weekend long. Um, uh, that's Dee's favorite show, although she sucked me in, okay? I have got sucked into Hallmark a little bit. There's sports. She doesn't watch that. And then there's HGTV, which everyone should watch just because we can all find out all those things you can do to your house that you can't really afford to do, and you don't have anybody else to do them. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. But there's a show on HGTV. I see it advertised all the time. I've never watched it. I think maybe because the title bothers me more than anything else. It's called My Lottery Dream Home. Has anyone, like, sucked into that? You know, it's that idea that what, what would you do to your house if you won one bazillion dollars? I think is what it's really about. And what could you do? What would you make it look like? What kind of tile would you put in? What kind of chandeliers would you put in? Um, what kind of gold trim? I don't know. I just seen the commercials. It's like, no, i got to watch that. Not my style. If you've ever been in our house, our house is comfy, it's homey, you want to take off your shoes, you want to come sit down and just kind of relax and, and crash. That's what our house is all about. Um, so the other thing, too, is, is honestly, if I won a million dollars, which I'm never going to do in the lottery because I don't buy a ticket, um, if I did, I wouldn't buy stuff anyways. Yeah, I'd probably pay some stuff off, but I wouldn't buy any more stuff. I wouldn't buy a big fancy house because in a minute, that can be gone. The way the wind was blowing last night, I was wondering if I was going to have siding on my house when I woke up this morning. Maybe you felt the same way. But you know, in many ways, I feel like one of the richest people in the world anyways. I am fortunate to have a beautiful wife that loves me, uh, two wonderful girls with husbands that I know adore them, which is always our dream and our prayer. Um, we have a great dog. You've got to have a great dog. I talk about my dog all the time. Yeah, an extended family and you that love me in spite of my faults. And last but not least, because it's the most important, um, a Savior who set a perfect example for us, who loved me so much that he was willing to go to the cross and die. And show me what it means to live free. But what if? What if all those things that I mentioned were gone? What if everything was good and then all of a sudden, overnight, it was blown away? I know you've heard it said before, maybe you've asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are Christians persecuted today, probably more in the last 200 years than they have been for centuries? It's more like the days of John. Why? Because Satan is out there trying to get people who stand for the truth. This second letter that was written to the church at Smyrna is fascinating because there is no negatives there's no criticism of the church, but yet it was a church that was living in very difficult times. Smyrna was a beautiful city, some 40 miles north of Ephesus, the city that we talked about last week, the city that had lost their first love. But just as Ephesus was known as the light of Asia, Smyrna was known as the glory of Asia. It was famed for its wide paved streets. I want you to think about that for a moment. We take a lot of things for granted, and paved streets are one of those, okay? For its wide paved streets, for its schools of science and medicine, 
for its large library and theater. It was the center of emperor worship in the area. And in the midst of all that glory, the church at Smyrna was suffering. They were being persecuted. They were being mocked. They were being ridiculed. They were being held in check by the Roman government and by Roman rule. And I mean harsh rule. It was not a good time to be a Christian. In a city filled with Romans and Jews, we'll talk about that later, who were out to get you. So are you ready to jump back into a time machine and jump back to Smyrna? I'm not. I have no idea what it means to be persecuted like that. I have no idea what it means to suffer as the way that church is known, as the suffering church. And in Revelations 2 through 8, the shortest letter written to any church, Jesus brings them encouragement. He does his best to lift them up into who he is, in the picture that they draw. He talks to them about the persecutions that they would endure and the promises that he gives to the faithful. What would it be like to be under extreme adversity? We don't know. But the church at Smyrna did. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see what's happening in this church. That we may be encouraged so that when we face trials, and we will, that we know that you are there. Thank you for living the life and setting the example. In your name we pray. Revelation 2, verse 8, simply says this. And the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and became to life. Here we see a, a beautiful picture of Jesus. One that we don't think of very often. He's telling us that there was nothing before him and there's nothing after him. That he is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He is everything from the beginning. He's the bookmarks, let's call it. And everything else in between the bookends. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. He's always been there and he always will be. And when it comes to suffering, he understands from birth to death and to life beyond. And he reminds the church that, hey, you can overcome that he defeated death itself. In Romans 6, 9, we see these words and we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. One writer put it this way, that Jesus' experience with death identified him with more than five million who were being martyred during this time period. Did you catch those numbers? Persecution was real. And it wasn't just persecution. It wasn't just a slap on the wrist. It was death itself. And let's face it, we face difficulties. We face trials. We don't even like it when somebody talks bad against us. And we feel bad. And we mope. They were facing persecution to the point of death. Let's face it. When I take advice from someone, I don't really want to take advice from someone that's never been there. 
It's like when your kid's not sleeping and their children and their babies. And all of a sudden, somebody comes in and goes, well, have you tried this and you tried this and you tried this? And they've never had a kid. You know? No one knew what it was like when our oldest would not go to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I had to drive them for an hour until I met somebody at the church that says, oh, we used to have to do that. I'm going, oh, I'm not the only one. Or what it was like to raise teenage daughters. If you have boys, you don't know that. If you have girls, you understand that completely. If you have young kids, just wait. Okay? All right? Just wait. And you start to understand that. It's like the person that thinks they're a great athlete. They'll tell you how to throw the ball. They'll tell you how to shoot the ball. They'll tell you how to hit the ball. And they've never even swung a bat. Don't tell me. Because you don't know. Jesus is saying you can overcome because he's been there. He's done that. And there's a reason for this picture that he paints. The church at Smyrna was going, listen, they were going through the fire. And he gives them an assurance that everything will be okay. Maybe not during their lifetime, but it will be okay. And he says this should be comfort enough. Remember, he tells us that he'll never leave us, that he'll never forsake us, that he's always there. And in the midst of their suffering, Jesus offers them these words of cheer from the one who was and who is and is is to come and says, you can and you will overcome, even death itself. And then we see the persecution in the church in verses 9 and 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are, they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulations. Be faithful unto death, and he will give you the crown of life. They would face persecution. But don't miss two key words that are there. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. It's personal to him. He understands it. He tells them, we're going to go through tribulation. We don't understand the word tribulation. We don't use it today. This tribulation is this hard pressure that's around them from some outside force. Think about it this way. Have you ever seen them squeeze grapes into juice? Okay. Okay. You ever seen them squeeze grapes? It takes an immense amount of pressure, and it keeps pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing until there's nothing left except for pulp. In the old days, they would get in, and they'd literally stomp on them and stomp on them. them. This is a tribulation. This is the pressure that the church is feeling. It's all around them. It's surrounding them. They cannot get away from it, and no matter what, they did not fold. No matter how much pressure there was, they didn't fall into it. They follow the examples of Jesus, of Paul, and even John, and they held true. And then there was poverty. The word used here for poverty is interesting because it literally is the word that means they don't have enough for their basic necessities. And Jesus tells them, hey, I know your poverty. I know you don't have enough for anything. Smyrna was an interesting church because the Roman rule was fascinating in that day and age. I told you they were very oppressive, and they were. 
In order to be able to trade in the Smyrna and in that area, you would have to go to the local altar once a year and you would have to claim Caesar as Lord. If you did, you were given a token. With that token, then, you could trade and you could share and you could find the things that you needed. Without that token, you became a beggar. You became a lender. And you possibly would not have enough to survive. And as Christians, they would not claim anyone else as Lord. Rightfully so. And they suffered. And they were poverty. And Jesus tells them, but you are rich. You're rich. You have all that you ever really need. And that was me. I don't know what it's like to go hungry. I don't know what it's like to not have a house. I have no idea. But somewhere along the line, as Jesus encouraged them that you, yes, you have poverty, but you are rich, they didn't take it in the wrong way. Some people would say, oh, I can't believe he would say that. How does he know? He tells them you're rich in other ways that you, beyond measure. The word rich literally here is fascinating because it denotes a position of power and authority. In other words, they may have thought they were poor, but they were rich in every single way. They were rich in God's sight. Luke 12, 15 says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all greed and covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Maybe you remember the scripture in Matthew where it says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were paying the price that they needed to be to follow Jesus and to be loyal to him. And then there was slander. Or did this slander happen? You and I get mad when somebody calls us a name. You and I get upset when somebody looks at us wrong. This is not what's happening here. The Jews and the Romans were under attack. They were attacking the Christians in every side. The Jews thought that they were right. In their minds, they knew that they were right. And you see how John writes about them, that they were a synagogue of Satan. They weren't Jews. They were Satan's minions working against the church, trying to tear the church apart. It was hatred. And there were others that were out there just literally working for the devil themselves. Listen, you will face persecution like this today. When you keep your faith to yourself, no one seems to worry about it, do they? But all of a sudden, when you start to tell people that you're a Christian, you start to live your faith, you start to show your faith, people will not like you necessarily because of what you do, but they will not like you because of whose you are. When they know that you're a child of the king, everything changes. And you and I are called to stand firm on the B-I-B-L-E. We're called to stand on the Word of God. Romans 8.31 says, What should we say then? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And then there was prison. Paul spent time in prison because of his faith, just like many of the early followers of Jesus. And the church at Smyrna knew that that's what could happen to them. With the wrong look, with the wrong words, with the wrong things, instantly they could be thrown in prison. In China and around the world today, Christians are still being imprisoned because of their faith. It happens. 
And how would you and I fare if we were faced with that challenge? If you knew when you walked out the doors of this church this morning that it was illegal to be a Christian and to share your faith, what would you say? What would you do? Jesus tells them not to lose heart, that their tribulation would be short. In other words, keep eternity in mind. The reason they were persecuting me is because they were honestly, they were faithful, faithful, faithful. Did I say faithful unto God? No matter what. You see, many times fear causes us to compromise. I'll give in a little bit. I'll give it a little bit more. And what happens is we start to lose that truth and that faith. So who's behind it? We know. It tells us right there in the Scripture twice that it's Satan. He's the enemy. He is. He was then. He is now. He always will be until the end of this book. Because we've got the answer in the end. We know ultimately who wins. We know where the victory is. Satan was working with the outsiders just like he works with them today. Maybe he called them Jews. Maybe he called them Romans. I don't know. He called them those two things, but there could have been more. And in our society, there are a lot more groups out there that call themselves good that are not doing good. It's all about whose bidding they are doing. This 10 days of tribulation is a little bit prophetic. No, it's a lot prophetic. It could have been the short time that they were spent in prison because of their faith. They kind of beat them to submission for them to understand and get to know. But many scholars think that it's the reference time between the very first emperor, Nero, who was against the church in 64 AD, to the nine more emperors, which makes ten, by the way, to Diocletian in 1313, who would be the worst of the worst. And during that 250-year time period, persecution of Christians would be at the top of the game. Jesus is telling them it won't last forever. You see, as Christians, if we neglect our calling, others will never discover God's grace. And Satan wins. But there's a promise to the faithful. Let's, Let's not forget that. There's a promise. I'm going to read the last part of 10 and then into 11 just to save a little bit of time. But he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He came to earth to go through every trial, to overcome every temptation, reminding them, hey, don't be afraid because I am with you. And he tells us that you and I will receive this crown of life. Not a ruling crown like that of royalty, like Daryl talked about. Giving up that ruling, that royal crown, not that kind of crown, but a victor's crown. And I don't know about you, but that's the crown I would want to get. If you ever played sports with me, and I know many of you have, I like to win, okay? I'm not the best loser. I like to win. And if I'm going to receive a crown, I want the victor's crown. I don't know if you remember the Olympics a few years ago when they were in Athens, but they didn't just get a gold medal. They got that laurel wreath that was placed upon their head. That's exactly the crown he's talking about. You will get that laurel wreath placed upon your head. And although it may wither and die, that feeling of satisfaction, that feeling of being a victor will never 
disappear. Friends, that's the promise that you and I have. That God will give us that crown, that crown of life. As James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive what? The crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's you and that's me. We are called to be faithful every step of the way. And then we will overcome the second death. The first death is the physical one. None of us can escape that. The second death, in simple terms and easy terms for everyone to understand, a word we don't use, don't say this in church, that you and I will not go to hell. Straightforward and simple. The promise that you and I are called to an eternal salvation in heaven. Revelation 20, 14 says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Final. Finished. The end. I don't know about you, but when suffering comes, I want to feel like there's something on the other side. I know you probably all have them because I know I do. I have a box of trophies in the basement. You know, it's not something I pull out and go, ooh, look at this. Look what I won. Woohoo! look how good I am. There aren't that many championships. There's a few. We didn't have participation trophies back then, okay? Okay? But those trophies don't mean anything to me anymore. They're like a really nice boat anchor, I guess. They just don't mean anything. But I tell you this, there is one thing I would like to earn, and that is that crown to be placed upon my head, that call to be faithful. That's exactly what you and I are called every day. Be faithful. Jesus comes and he encourages this church as he writes this letter and he encourages them Stay faithful in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of slander, in the midst of all the things you're going through. Just stay faithful. In the next 10 years, the church as we know it will change. And we must stay faithful. Tribulation in the United States is becoming realer and realer and realer. The outside forces are coming in upon us. We must stay faithful. This letter could be written to us. And it's there to encourage us to stay strong. We're going to sing an invitation, song of invitation. If you guys would come up. And as they're coming up, instead of having a word of prayer right here, I, I just want to encourage you to do this. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to pray for. I bet we all know someone that needs some encouragement. Someone that's been through a trial, struggle. Someone that's really, as we say, are just going through it right now. Maybe you need to write them a note of encouragement. Maybe you need to call them this week, take them out to coffee, take them out to lunch. Maybe you need to go sit in a nursing home with 
a senior citizen that doesn't have anyone and be Jesus to them. I want to give you some practical things to do. We can tell you to be the church, but this is how we are the church. We love people that aren't loved. We care for people who don't have anyone to care for them. Go out and be the example. Be Jesus to the world. Because people are hurting and they need to know his love.